Well, celebrations can be a lot of fun, can't they? Have you ever been to a birthday party or something that was quite celebratory? You've probably done that, right? I remember being at a wedding, which is usually kind of a celebratory kind of atmosphere, particularly at the reception. And I remember all of a sudden there's an eruption over kind of in this section over here at the, at the reception. And that's because the LA Kings had won the Stanley Cup championship while this couple was at their reception enjoying their wedding day, which of course they were Kings fans. So the whole a reception erupted in celebration at that moment. We were excited they were, had gotten married, but we were also really excited that the Kings had won the Stanley Cup. And I just remember being there and kind of how fun that was. If you're a sports fan in any shape or form or not, you probably have seen on the news when the Astros won their first World Series in franchise history this past fall and the celebration that ensued after that. Um, or, or, of course, as a Dodger fan, is a little... We'll just leave it at that. Uh, but, but you probably saw also this past uh, February when the Philadelphia Eagles won their first Super Bowl in franchise history and the celebration that ensued. And for those of you that are Cubs fans, Matt Chapin, um, we remember when they won their World Series championship because you weren't around. None of us were the previous time. And the celebration that ensued following that. You know, when a professional sports team wins a championship... The, the city that it's from in nowadays goes just absolutely crazy. You've seen this. You know this. And usually what the city will do is they will hold a big parade. And they'll get the double-decker bus and all that and maybe flatbed trailers. And they'll go through the city. And people will turn out just in droves to celebrate because it's a citywide celebration. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people will come together. Sometimes it's a million or a plus People that have never seen each other, met each other, met eye to eye before, will come together and celebrate and cheer and clap and dance and then hug each other, even though they've never met each other before because they're so excited in celebrating a team's victory. Well, I want to submit to you that Palm Sunday was an atmosphere that is very much like we see in our society today when a sports team wins a championship. This atmosphere that greeted Jesus on the day he made his way into Jerusalem on a donkey. The people were in a frenzy. It was exciting. It was a celebration. I mean, the Bible tells us, as we see here, that people laid out their coats or their cloaks it was incredible as this was happening. People grabbed palm branches and broke them off and threw them down. They were so excited in the celebration for this day. I mean, the crowd cried out Hosanna over and over and over again because I believe, as I look at Scripture, I would say it's probably the greatest celebration Jerusalem had ever experienced was on this particular day. And, and why not? Word is getting out that Jesus has just performed one of the greatest miracles, for many as they would view him, of all his miracles, in raising a guy from the dead who had been in a tomb for four days. I mean, word's getting out. This is pretty exciting. And Jesus is becoming the talk of the town. Everybody is wanting to get to know him and, and be around him. And they're interested in him. He's quite popular. Social media, he would be trending for sure at this moment. Well, the Pharisees, who were the elite leaders of the church at that time, begrudgingly 
But rightly said of Jesus in John 12, verse 19, the end of it, when they said this, look, the world has gone after him. The world has gone after him. It was a frenzy. And indeed, the world has gone after him. And I just look at it, particularly in America today, from a Barna survey of April of 2017, entitled Jesus, Man, Myth, or God. Just some quick observations they made. 93% of Americans believe Jesus Christ was the person who actually lived. 63% of Americans say they've made a commitment to Jesus that's still important in their lives today. 59% of Americans have no doubt that Jesus will return to earth someday. If we were to do more statistics and more research, not only in America, but around the world, I would submit to you that, look, (laughs) the world has gone after Jesus. They've gone after Jesus. And I want to submit to you that there's going to be some people here next week on Sunday because it's Easter Sunday. And people come out for that because the world's gone after Jesus. Well, today, as we noted, it's Palm Sunday, and it commemorates the beginning of what usually is referred to or known as the Holy Week or the Passion Week that begins really on today as, as in a celebratory way. Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago was a day filled with clapping and cheering and celebration, like the sports victory that might be in a city where many, 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 many people have gathered It's interesting, if you look at statistically the population, not that they did a census that you could go Google it and find it back in the first century, but what we found is is that Jerusalem had a population in time of Jesus' life and ministry was about 600,000 residents, give or take whatever, but you get a picture of that. So 600,000 people in the city of Jerusalem. However, for Passover for this Passion Week, for this special week in the Jewish calendar. It went from approximately 600,000 people to 2 million people gathered for one week in one city that normally has a fraction of, of that many people. So you can imagine then if there's that many people, what the atmosphere would have been like when, when you have 2 million people present. I mean, every household not only has their own family, but has relatives that have come and traveled to Jerusalem. You might have a friend that's staying at your house. Um, the hotels, if you will, the ends of that day, full occupancy. And literally, people are bringing their RVs and trailers, and they're camping out, right? I mean, it is just all gathered for this incredible week. And so today as we revisit this Sunday, this Palm Sunday, as it happened two years ago, 2,000 years ago, I want to cover three objectives, kind of three goals with you this morning, and they are these. First of all, I want to ask and answer three basic but I would say important questions about the activities surrounding Palm Sunday and Jesus' engagement with it. Some some questions I want to ask and answer. I also want to uh, you to see how Palm Sunday illustrates something, how it illustrates a challenge that I believe we have each and every day that we have to 
we have to process through throughout the year. And then finally, I want to invite you uh, in a unique way, in a special way, to celebrate this day by offering praises to our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we go into this text here in just a moment, into this day, Jesus has spent the last three years of his life in active ministry, known as the, uh, commonly known as his earthly ministry. So as you know, when we come into Christmas, we are knowing about Bethlehem and where Jesus is born. But that's not where he spends most of his time, not even close. Nazareth is actually the place where he spends the majority of his time, approximately 30 years of his focus of his time is spent in Nazareth. And then as he begins his ministry, he moves out from there to a place called Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. And that's where he spends about the next three years, the focus of his ministry time, that he's basically based out of Capernaum. And so the events take place on Palm Sunday in Jerusalem. It's kind of reminded me this week, so that's not a place that Jesus spent in a ton of time. Nazareth, Capernaum, and now Jerusalem. So this isn't a place that he's around every single day throughout all of his life. So he's coming into a city as well. And so here it is. He's just arrived in a, in a place right outside Jerusalem. Beth Page, Bethany's text has it. And it's probably Friday that he's arrived in the, into the outskirts of the city. And here we are on Sunday where he's about to make his triumphal entry. And let's pick it up from Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 21. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. We're looking at verses 1 through 11, which Matthew records from his perspective this event of the triumphal entry. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 1. When they had approached Jerusalem, that's Jesus and his disciples, and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey there, tied, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. God, we thank you for your word. And God, I just pray that you would illuminate 
insight today for us in our own lives. Guys, we look at these questions, we just want to ask, understand the significance of what was going on here. God, help us to understand that. God, help us to realize how this day, Palm Sunday, illustrates a challenge that all of us face and must wrestle with each and every day. And yet, God, you tell us in your word that we're to come and celebrate and praise. And I thank you for the worship team that leads us in worship each and every week and allows us to do that. God, guide us now as we go and we discuss and we look at your word in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as you go through the Gospels, one of the things you'll read over and over again is this phrase, the time had not yet come. The time had not yet come. Or you'll read also when the disciples or those close to him are figuring out who he is, he's telling them, do not go tell anybody who I really am. Do not disclose my identity. Two common themes, two common phrases, two common instructions. His time had not yet come, and don't tell anybody who I really am yet. Well, that was the norm (laughs) until this day. This day, it changed. The time changed, and the disclosure of who he was is about to change. It's Palm Sunday. His time had come. The cross, as we know, was just a few days away. And on this day, he himself, Jesus himself, not others, but he himself would disclose, would reveal his true identity. And we see this in verse 3. Go back to the text there. In this instruction, they're right here about to go into Jerusalem. They're in Bethpage, Bethany, those cities right there. And he gives his instruction to his disciples, two of them, to go in and get this, this uh, colt. It's interesting, in verse 3, he says this, if, anything, uh, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. The Lord has need of them. What are you supposed to say if someone says something to you, which in John's account, they do say something? He goes, oh, the Lord has told us to do this. The Lord has told us to do this. That's a disclosure of who he really was, the Lord. Now, it's interesting, the Greek word there is kyrios, which is the word we get for Lord. What we don't know for sure is what the concept was in the disciples' mind, those two disciples. Because... The word Lord could mean a master, or it could mean deity. We're not really sure what the disciples are processing through at this moment, other than to use this phrase, Lord, Kyrios, that's who sent us, that's who's instructed us. And as I thought about that and processed that through, I want to submit to you that Jesus, in his mind and in his uh, motivation, in his purpose, It's not just to be a master. It's to be the Lord. It's to be deity. It's to be God. Tell them God sent you (laughs) to take this. I mean, as I thought about that and processed that through, who else could justify and have a pure and righteous motive to tell two guys to go snake two donkeys, right? Who's going to tell them in a right way, in a right motive to say, hey, go steal, go take for yourselves two donkeys. And if they ask, tell them God sent you. Who else does that? I mean, I can't imagine in the years that the disciples have been with Jesus and the first time he's telling them, go take something, right? Maybe take a loaf of bread and all that, but not go take something in town, go into a city and find it, and you'll find it there and grab them 
and take them and just tell them God sent you. This is amazing that he's doing this, and the deity I, th- I want to submit to you is, is what Jesus is intending to, to portray here. And I'm guessing the disciples, as they walk along and grab this donkey, are going, I don't think this is just any master. I think this is God speaking here. I think this is God directing us, perhaps as they process this through. Verses 1 through 3 finds Jesus and his disciples in Bethpage, and they're about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And so they're about to come into Jerusalem. Which brings us to my first question for this morning. What's the significance of Jesus riding on a colt into Jerusalem? What's this about? Well, Matthew answers it in verses 4 and 5. Look back in your text. Matthew, as he's writing here, takes a moment to pull the car over, if you will, and say, here's what's really going on, folks, in case you're wondering, what's the significance of Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem? This took place, he says, to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Zechariah. This is from Zechariah 9.9. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the answer to this question of what's the significance of this, of him riding on a colt in Jerusalem, is to fulfill prophecy. He's fulfilling prophecy, signifying that he was indeed the Messiah. Who else is going to fulfill this but Jesus himself? The Messiah is the one who's doing this. One question that came to my mind is, why a cult? Why this? Well, besides fulfilling prophecy, because he could have chosen any animal, perhaps, a cult symbolizes peace. A cult symbolizes peace, whereas a horse, if you will, symbolizes more of a military um, ambition or a military conquest, Notice how back in verse 7 it says that Jesus sat on them. That's not both of them. That's referring to the coats or the cloaks. And notice how it says that he sat on the colts that's never been ridden. And notice how it says that this colt lets Jesus do this. Now, I don't know about you, but I happened to grow up on a farm as a kid. We had hogs, we had cattle, we had ducks, we had chickens, we had dogs, we had cats. You get the picture of the animals that are going around our farmyard and the corral and whatnot. One of the things I used to love to do in messing around was when you have a market hog, which is the bacon you eat, by the way, they're about 200, 225 pounds. They're really a challenge to ride. And with my brother and I, we would jump on one through the barn, pull one out of the stall and bring it into the barn and see how far we could get across the barn before we were bucked off. Crazy things that you do on the farm, a lot of fun. And I've I've ridden other animals as well. We won't go there, but it's just crazy to think about this. And so as I looked at this from my farm boy uh, process, I thought, this is not normal. We had a milk cow. I used to, my job was to feed the calf. Because we wanted to keep the milk for ourselves. Yes, we were selfish. We liked that, that buttercream. It was awesome. I had to feed that. I tried to jump on that thing. Are you kidding me? There's no way you're going to hold on to it and stay on. And yet, what do we see here? What we don't see here in text is that this cult is bucking him off. What am I bringing out this for? I just want to submit to you right there, right here, is that this is a sign of Jesus' deity. He is in sovereign control of this animal. That's not normal from the farm, I can tell you. That's not normal to jump on an animal and have it be in submission to you. 
And here's Jesus and his deity and his control. The Lord, the Messiah, is here and he's in control. Look at verse 8. Look back at verse 8. It says, Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. What's the significance of the cloaks and palm branches? What's the significance of that? Well, the answer is this. The crowd recognizes Jesus as king. The crowd is recognizing Jesus as king. You see, the cloaks or the coats are outer garments. They were even used, if you will, as a sleeping bag. They were kind of like I like to say is your bread and butter of clothing. They were essential. They were everything for you. And so they symbolize, and the crowd puts this down, they're symbolizing, they're submitting something very valuable. They're submitting to him and recognize him as king. There's symbolism here. Symbolism is huge throughout scripture, and we see it right here. The palm branches, what about those? What's the significance of those being put down? Again, recognize Jesus as king, but they symbolize Jewish nationalism and victory. You see, this wasn't just Jesus coming into the city and we're going to throw down palm branches. This is saying, we are Israel. We are here. This is our king who's come in. We celebrate this as a country, as a nation. Two million people that have gathered into this city. This is exciting. And they symbolize as well is righteousness. So that's the answer to our second question. Let's move on to verse 9. Verse 9 says this, The crowds going ahead of him and those followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. My third question, what's the significance of the crowd shouting Hosanna? What's going on here? What's the significance of this word? And notice that it says they're not whispering it. They're not talking it. They're shouting it. And the answer is, is that the crowd recognized and declared that salvation had finally arrived. Salvation had finally arrived. Why do I know that? Well, Hosanna is a Hebraic word. It's an expression. It's a cry for help. And literally what it means is it means save now. Save now. We're excited that he's come here. We see him on a colt. We were throwing coats down and branches down. And as he comes in here, we're shouting, Hosanna, save now. Son of David, they say. This title signified that the crowd recognized that Jesus was the Davidic Messiah. In today's terms, in other words, it would mean he had the right DNA. He would pass the test signifying who he was. He wasn't just some guy. He was actually the right guy, the son of David. Note in verse 9, it says there was a crowd that went ahead of him and a crowd that followed him. The the picture here, what's going on is this. People are running up and seeing the crowd, right? It's kind of like when you're driving on the freeway and everyone slows down to see what's going on the other side of the freeway. Right, that kind of thing, and we're all kind of interested in that. Well, people are starting to come out to see him, and they're running up. And as they run up, imagine them hearing, Hosanna, son of David. Like, what what are they saying? Let's get closer. You get up closer. Hosanna, son of David. Oh, I get it. Now I get what they're saying. Oh, I mean, save now. Salvation's come. Oh, he's finally here. He's our king. We've thrown it down. He's signifying on this cold that he's coming with peace, but he's the Messiah. So the crowd runs up, the crowd is now getting full, right? And so what happens is they run up, the procession is moving this way, 
And so they turn around and start chanting this crowd and leading the way. And the crowd gets bigger and bigger and bigger in the front as he comes along the parade route, if you will. And behind him are the disciples. Can you imagine being a disciple and you're looking at going, man, I can't even see the front of the line now, the front of the parade. It's gotten so much bigger and everybody is chatting, shouting, Hosanna, son of David. This is like that celebration that you would have in the sports team when, the, when that player gets up and says something. We won, and everyone, Rah! It's this concept, it's this environment, it's this excitement that's going on here. And so in the midst of the celebration, you can understand then why the Pharisees said in John 12, 19, look, the world has gone after him. They certainly have. So as Jesus enters Jerusalem, a question is raised, and it is this. Who is this? See, in the midst of the pandemonium and excitement and all that's going on here, there's still a question. Who is this? Look at verses 10 and 11. This is how I know. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Well, this brings me to my second objective this morning, and it's this. Palm Sunday, in my mind, illustrates a challenge we face each and every day of the year, and it's this. Who is Jesus to me on this day, today? It's a challenge Jesus, who are you to me today? Does it match up what you say? Or have I joined in with the crowd with maybe a little bit slightly different interpretation? In other words, we can ask and answer three questions that are raised and get them correct, and I believe that's important. The crowd understood who Jesus was, that he was a prophet, that he was a king, that he was a Messiah. But this is where I type out caps lock, bold, underline, highlight, but, (laughs) but many wanted Jesus on their terms. Have you been there? They wanted Jesus on their terms, on their condition. And I believe it's a challenge for us. Some of the examples, I think, for the crowd that day was this, yeah, Jesus is coming in, but Jesus rid Israel of Roman occupation. That's been a legacy of our nation. Remember back in Egypt when we were slaves? And now we've got the Romans occupying us. Jesus, hey, if you would, you seem to be the one, you rid us of of all this Roman occupation. Or, Or rule politically for my cause, for the how I want stuff to happen. Or maybe it was respond to my want for a miracle for me. Respond to my want, Jesus, for my miracle and what I want. It's even as much of the same crowd who just a few days later, because I don't think in the moment they realize this is a celebration, this is it, and then they start to process through and go, wait a minute, that salvation now, Hosanna, I don't, I don't think he's here to save us from the Roman occupation. 
I don't believe the political aspirations that I have and I want, the miracles I want, he's going to do this, which is why just a few days later, much of the same crowd yells out, crucify him. Wow. And one day you're celebrating and the next day, a few days later, you're yelling, crucify him? Crucify him? Maybe that's because that's a challenge that you guys were facing and that we face. Who is Jesus good to be today to me? Does he get to be who he wants to be and who he says he is? Or am I interpreting it or I want it to be something different? See, the challenge for the crowd, the challenge for you and me with this question, who is this, is I think we're tempted to answer for Jesus. We're tempted to answer for Jesus. In other words, Jesus fixed this problem. That's who you are. You're a problem solver. Jesus fixed this person. After all, you said you're the great counselor. Fix that person. Or fix this relationship. God, again, you're the counselor. Fix this. Fix that relationship. Fix my job. Fix my income. Fix this. Fix that. Fix this situation. But whatever you do, Jesus, don't fix me. That's hands off. You can fix everybody else. You can fix every other situation. That's what you've really come for. But don't you dare go and trying to fix me. I'm fine with me. I like me. I'm me. Have you been there with that challenge? That's what Palm Sunday does to me. Because I can get celebration. I can get in here and worship. But then I get out in the real world and I'm going, man, Jesus, I want you to do this. I want you to be that way. Friends, the Bible identifies a specific mission that Jesus had riding into Jerusalem, and it was to fix people's sin condition. It's to deal with sin. Oh, yeah, I don't want you to talk about me, Jesus. I know. But look what I said in my word. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Mark 2.17 says, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That's his mission. That's his purpose of why he's riding into town on this day. If you've been saved by grace through faith, if you've been saved by the blood of Christ, if you've been saved from God's judgment because of your sins. In other words, if you're here today as a born-again Christian, your challenge, my challenge is this, to let Jesus be Jesus. To let Jesus be Jesus. The Bible says if you've surrendered your life to Jesus as Savior and Lord, and then Jesus is sanctifying you daily, this means that at times the refinery that he's going to work is going to feel like fire. It's going to be hot. It's going to start to melt things away and get into certain things in your life that you're like, Jesus, I don't like the heat. I don't like what you're doing so much. It's also going to mean that he's going to use the trials in your life to make you more like him, to refine you, to sanctify you, to set you apart from the world. He's going to use tribulations. And in the time and in the midst of that, we're going, no, 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 no. Don't try and fix me. Don't try and do that. Fix these other things around me. Because that's your God. You can do that. So, who is this? If you ask that question personally of Jesus today, your non-conditional answer should be Jesus. 
Jesus, you're king of kings and you're king of my life. Jesus, you're Lord. You're Lord of my life. Jesus, you are who you say you are in your word. And I affirm that. Jesus, I say to you, your will be done, not mine, in my life. That's a challenge. Oh, man, that's a challenge for me. It's a challenge, though, that we can overcome. Might be wondering, well, how can we overcome that? Well, I wrote this morning as I was reviewing my message, I worded it this way, through humble adoration, through humility, through humble adoration. Lastly, this morning, the few moments I've got left, as you remember the celebration that Palm Sunday brought 2,000 years ago, I want us to conclude by taking a moment to offer praises for our king. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, 15, this. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. So Grace Hills Church, what praises do you have for Jesus? What adoration, what thanksgiving, what words of affirmation do you have for Jesus this morning? If you were amongst the crowd shouting Hosanna, what else would you be shouting and praising God for in your life today? If you were to stop and think about that. In your, in your sermon, uh, our notes, I provided on the back of this sheet right here. I'd like you to pull that out, if you would. If you haven't used this yet, do me the favor and pull it out now. And there should be a pen in front of you. And with that pen, what I want you just to take to do just for a moment is I just want you to stop. I just want you to stop and praise Jesus. Just stop for a moment and go, God, if I pull the car over, if I really stop and think about who you are, that you are a good God, that you have a great purpose for my life, first and foremost is to rid me of sin to forgive me of my sin. But there's so many attributes of God. There's so many things we can praise him for, whether it's his salvation or his steadfast love or his omnipotence, omnipresence, or omniscience. I want you to take a moment with a pen just between you and God right now. Would you take a moment and write out a praise, praises, Thanksgiving, just simple sentences, simple statements to him on that sheet. Write that out. And if you're not going to write, close your eyes then and think in your mind as this song plays in the background. Come and listen. Come to the wise edge of you. No
take a moment in the seconds we've got left and just have you right from where you are just read out one of those statements so that we can be encouraged and be like oh yeah I'm praising God for that in your life too so if you have one I don't have any order this side that side front back wherever just if you have a praise just shout that out if you wrote something down just share it do you have something Anybody? Yeah. Forgiver. Praise God for the Mm hmm. What else? Yes. What else? Salvation, freedom, and living in this country. Good. Praising for our children. I wrote that down as my last thing. Yes. Good. Someone else. Family, friends, and children. Family, friends, and children. Yes. Yes. Help someone like the creator of the universe would actually take time for me to um, show me something to uplift me in the day, mm-hmm. like a little bird or you know a beautiful flower. Yeah. Like he's the creator of the universe, he would take time for me. Yeah. Awesome. The intimacy that God gives us. See, when we stop and we think for a moment the praises that we could give up to Jesus, they're a lot. The challenge we have is to get to those. In the midst of the things that we want Jesus to fix or to do rather than us. He's king. He's Messiah. He's fulfilled prophecies. He's here. He's come to save you, to save me. God, I stop and I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the time we've had of celebrating who you are, God. That we can praise you. That, God, we can offer up praises. God, I pray that you would just continue to work in us through this entire week, this holy week, this week of passion, God. Would you stir in us a heart of thanksgiving, a heart of praise, in our words, in our devotion, God, may you be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.